Well, it is a privilege to be gathered here with you all on the Lord's Day. If you would take your Bibles out and open them to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18. If you are visiting with us this Lord's Day morning, we're glad you're here. We're walking through the book of Deuteronomy. And so we are just over halfway finished with this book, Deuteronomy 18. And before we have you stand for the reading of the Word of God, if you're able, learn a couple of things since moving to uh, East Tennessee. Been here about a year and a half, just over a year and a half. I've learned, first of all, there are four seasons. From Texas, you know, I didn't know that. And especially Central Texas, I knew two seasons. Uh, hot and hotter. But here in East Tennessee, there are four seasons, and I love that. And I also found out you can experience a couple of them within about 24 hours. <laughs> so happy spring or near spring to you all. This Lord's Day, the snow was a delight, but I am looking forward to uh, more sunshine as we're going to get some today and things begin to melt. And then one other thing I want to mention to you, these are just thoughts that go through my mind before we get to the text. I might as well get it out before we get to the text of Scripture. Now, I was about to get up. I oftentimes will look up at the clock. I don't know if you can see the clock from where you're sitting. Some of you in the back cannot, but I rely on that clock. And uh, that clock says 944. <laughs> so, so what would Pastor Phil say? Buckle your pew belts. I'll try to remember but it's actually an hour behind. Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is the word of the living God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's day. So if you're able, would you please stand to hear the God who still speaks in his word? Deuteronomy 18, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Moses writes, as he's carried along by the Spirit of God, the Levitical priests... All the tribe of Levi shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. And this shall be the priests due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel where he lives and he may come when he desires to the place that the Lord will choose and ministers in the name of the Lord his God like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. As a dad, I love being able to say yes to my children. Parents in the room perhaps can relate to that. Love being able to say yes. Love being able to see them light up when they make a request and I'm able to grant that request. It really does delight me to give them good gifts. In fact, I tell them from time to time, it is one of my delights in this life to give to my children good things. I'm grateful to be able to do so. On the other hand, there are times, as I'm sure any parent in the room can relate and testify, when I withhold something from my children. It may be a request that they have. Maybe they've come and they've asked for something and, and I have to tell them no, or I feel that I should tell them no, but it may not be a request at all. It may just simply be a desire. Perhaps it's something that friends are receiving and it's not necessarily that it's wrong to give my children these things. But for whatever reason, I decide at this time, this is not something I'm going to grant my children. When I do this, when I withhold something from them, uh, it's oftentimes the case, though not always, it's oftentimes the case that I have a conversation 
with uh, my, my three children, if it's all three of them, or perhaps even just one of them, about considering not what they aren't receiving, but what they have received and what they will receive. This is a conversation perhaps as adults we need to hear on a regular basis as well, isn't it? Not focusing on what we don't have, as is so easy to do, but focusing rather on what we do have and what we have been promised, especially for those of us who are in Christ. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, the God and Father of Israel withholds something from some of his children known as the Levites. Now, the Levites, for a little Old Testament background here for you, the Levites were the priestly tribe of the people of Israel. And so the priests actually came from the tribe of Levi and God says here in this text and elsewhere throughout the Old Testament that he is going to withhold something from the Levites more generally and from the priests more specifically. And as God withholds something from these priests, from these Levites, in our text, what he does is he highlights what they are in fact receiving. The Levites were not to focus on what they didn't have. The Levites were to focus on what they in fact did have and what they would have on account of God's grace and mercy. And what we're going to find in the text is that what the Levites are receiving is far superior to what God is withholding from them. This morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through these eight verses. And this is an interesting homiletical unit, isn't it? As I read that text, you ever, you ever hear me read a text and think, how in the world? We're going to sit here for a few minutes and hear a sermon on this. That's, that's part of the reason we preach expositionally. It's part of the reason we believe, rather, this is driven by, I should say, a belief that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. If the pastor is incapable of preaching a portion of Scripture, any portion of Scripture, I think it's in large part due to an inadequate understanding on the part of the pastor, not an inadequacy in the Word of God. And so this is a challenge that I have consistently as a pastor. Don't always do a good job of that, certainly, but it's a desire I have to preach all of Scripture as Christian instruction fulfilled in Christ Jesus and now applied to God's people today. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through these eight verses, Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 through 8, in order to better understand and apply what God withholds and what God promises these priests in Israel. And we're going to find out, I think, that this text is especially relevant for us as followers of Jesus Christ living in the 21st century right here in East Tennessee. If you're taking notes, here are the steps. We're going to unpack this text in three stages. And and perhaps this will interest some of you, perhaps not others of you, that's okay. This was a two-point sermon until about the last 24 hours. And then I thought, it's a disease. It's a disease I have, three points. Um, but nevertheless, as I was working through it and just kind of polishing up some things, I thought, no, I think there needs to be one more point, and here it is. Well, so it is a three-point sermon. If you're taking notes, first of all, we're going to look together at what God withholds from the priests. What God withholds. What does he not give to the priests in the text? And then secondly, after looking at what God withholds, we're going to look together at the text and find out what God gives to the priests. So what God withholds and then what God gives. And then finally, after explaining these two stages in the text, we are going to conclude our time together by looking at what this means for us. What does it mean for us? What God withholds, what God gives, and what does all of this mean for us as followers of Christ? Well, let's begin by looking together at verse 1, part A, so the very first part of verse one, look down at the text with me if you would, where we find what God withholds from the priests. Here's what Moses writes. The Levitical priests, namely, we could say all the tribe of Levi, that's the focus here broadly, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. Now, perhaps a bit of background here to understand this portion of Deuteronomy 
In this section, the priests and the tribe of Levi are virtually interchangeable. Now, this has caused a great amount of consternation and confusion among Old Testament commentators. And I've read some of those this week. Perhaps I've read some of them in the past. And you may come across this in your studies of Deuteronomy 18 if you do that sort of thing outside of our time together on the Lord's Day. Because the reality is this. Not every Levite was a priest. Although every priest was indeed a Levite. There were categories of Levites. And we find these categories, for example, in Numbers chapter 4, and they're divided according to the sons of Levi. But here in the text, you'll notice the tribe of Levi is interchangeable. It's virtually synonymous with the priest, the Levitical priest. What does Moses misunderstand? Well, you know, of course, I don't think that's the case, that he misunderstands, rather. After all, he wrote Numbers 4. He understands that There's a distinction within the tribe of Levi. He also understands it because from what tribe does Moses come? Hint. Levi, right? You were scared to say it, but I wasn't leading you astray. It's a trust problem with your pastor, isn't there? When he asks a question from the pulpit. So Moses understands these subtle distinctions in the tribe of Levi, So why does he generalize here? He generalizes because his point is not the distinctions. You see, when we bring assumptions or questions to the text that the text is not attempting to answer, we're misguided. A more liberal scholar, for example, might conclude, well, you know, whoever wrote this didn't understand that not all Levites were priests. But rather, if we ask the question here, what's the point of the text? We'll find out that the point of the text has nothing to do with the distinctions within the tribe of Levi. The point of the text has everything to do with a theological purpose. So generalizing the issue, namely just using these things interchangeably, the tribe of Levi and the priests, is sufficient for the purpose of Deuteronomy 18 and for the purpose of Moses' sermon as he's 120 years old preaching to the second generation of Israelites on the plains of Moab. Okay, so some of you perhaps were unaware that there are distinctions in the tribe of Levi, but for those of you who are aware, you need to know this, Moses generalizes here in Deuteronomy 18. So that gives us a little bit of background so that we can see now what is it that God withholds, and we're going to say it this way, from the priests. And again, we're just using this interchangeably, priests and Levi. What does he withhold in the text? The portion or inheritance with Israel. Well, what's the portion? What's the inheritance for Israel? Well, we found out back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 38, that this inheritance is the land of Canaan. Remember this? And I just, I just mentioned this. Moses, 120-year-old Moses, preaches his final sermon here recorded in Deuteronomy. And as he stands up, he's preaching to this second generation of Israelites who have come out of Egypt by God's grace and power. And they're about to enter the promised land. And so as Moses is preaching to the second generation of Israelites, he's showing them that what they are in fact about to receive is God's promised inheritance, the promise that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, their forefathers. And so throughout Deuteronomy, when when Deuteronomy speaks about Israel's inheritance, there is always some reference to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And so in the text, we find out explicitly God is withholding this from the Levites. Now imagine this with me for just a moment. You're about to go into the promised land and every other tribe within Israel is going to receive a portion of it. But you. You're not going to get any portion of the land. You're going to get cities to live in because after all, you're going to have to have some place to live. And the tribe of Levi is going to be scattered throughout the land of Canaan. This gets a bit later, but it does make sense of the following verses, actually. Verses 6, 7, and 8. So you're going to have to have cities or towns in which to live, but you're not actually going to own any portion of the land. Everybody else is going to but you, your tribe. So this is what God withholds 
from them. Ownership in the land of Canaan. Now let's look together at what God gives. God doesn't simply withhold. In fact, this text is not about what God withholds primarily. It's primarily about what God gives to the priests. And there are two aspects to this. Two aspects of what God gives to these priests. First of all, notice that God gives them a share in the offerings that belong to the Lord. You see that? Look with me at verse one again. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. Remember that, that means, of course, they won't have ownership in the land. Then he goes on to say, they shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. So the inheritance that Levi actually acquires from the Lord is found in the offerings, in the altar. Interesting enough, the things that belong exclusively to the Lord, God shares with the priests. Now keep in mind that the benefits of owning land included being able to work and live off of the land. Your sustenance was dependent on owning land. And if you didn't own land, you worked land for somebody else. And so you would live day by day, week by week, through the acquisition of crops that came from the land, slaughtering various forms of livestock that grazed on the land and lived in the land. And so without land ownership, you would be, don't miss this, dependent on others who owned land. As a result, in order to provide sustenance for the priests. Notice what God does. God says, look, you're not going to inherit the land per se. What you're going to get is you're going to get the offerings that belong to me, that come to me. So God provided a share in these offerings that were brought by the other tribes who in fact did own land, you see. And so it was in fact that the Levites lived off of the land, but they lived off of the land by means of the faithfulness of the other tribes. Look with me at verses three and four. Get a little more detail about the way this worked. Verse three, this shall be the priests due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. So there are portions of the animal that went to the priest to provide sustenance for the priests. Verse four, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, And the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. So the priests now receive meat and grain and wine and oil and fleece, all of which served to care for those serving as priests before God on behalf of the people. And by the way, this is a bit off topic, but not exactly. It's, I think, foundational. Because as we read Deuteronomy 18, there's an understanding, actually there's an assumption, I should say, that we understand that the role of priests. And if you're new to the Old Testament, you may not know the role of priests. I remember coming to the Lord early on and feeling lost all of the time in church. Um, God in his mercy continued to inform. But you said something like priests to me and I didn't know what you were talking about. Well, the priests served on behalf of the people in the presence of God and they served on behalf of God in the presence of the people. That was really the vocation of a priest. The priest represented God's people in the presence of God. And the priests represented God in the presence of the people as they instructed from God's law, even as we saw back in Deuteronomy 17. So broadly speaking, that's the role of an Old Testament priest. Represent the people in the presence of God, represent God in the presence of the people. And here, they received what belonged to the Lord. The Lord, as it were, is sharing this with them. Their inheritance consisted in the altar, in the place that existed because of the presence of sin. That's the reason the altar existed. The demand for sacrifices, offerings, resulted in large part and primarily, I should say, on account of the presence of sin in the fall. And so the priests now are benefiting from what is a symbol of God's mercy and grace. We're going to return to this in just a bit. 
This unique role of the Levites, the priests specifically, was the result of the Lord's decision. Look at verse five. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. What's the point here? Look, they may not receive a portion of the land, but they do have this unique privilege to minister in my presence on behalf of the people. They're doing things that the people will never be able to do that is in this life. It wasn't just anyone who could come in here and minister in the presence of the Lord, minister in the tabernacle and around the tabernacle. And then verses six through eight, and then we'll look back at verse two where we'll find the second aspect of their inheritance. Verses six through eight, I just wanna mention this. Moses describes a scenario. And the scenario is one in which after Israel occupies the land of Canaan and is scattered throughout the land, some of the Levites at that point, some of the priests express the desire to go and minister at the tabernacle. You know, perhaps they have to travel a long ways away and they decide, you know what, I wanna be there. It may not even be my turn to be there. I may not, in the rotation, it may not be yet my rotation, but I wanna be there. I wanna minister in the presence of the Lord. And so Moses says, when they express the desire to come to the tabernacle and serve there, let them come. Let them come willingly, voluntarily, eagerly. We could translate this. And when this happens, God says, it's possible, and this is difficult to understand. It's actually difficult to translate. Some of your translations may indicate this at the very last verse of our text, verse eight. The ESV translates a word, patrimony. Do you see that? Maybe up on the screen, there it is. Other translations do different things. Well, what does this word mean? It's tough to know exactly the reference in the text because they didn't own land. But Moses says, when they come, they're probably gonna sell some of what belongs to the family. They're gonna let things go so they can move everything to that area and minister at the tabernacle. And Moses says, they're still to share in the Lord's offerings. They still receive the unique inheritance that belongs to the priests. That's the point. The point here is that nothing that they've received outside of this inheritance should jeopardize participation of this inheritance. You see? The altar is their inheritance. The offerings belong to the Levites. That's the point. And that's why this scenario is described. Now, there was this second aspect. And I know this gets a little technical, all of this. But I think we're gonna find that it really grows legs and walks in Christ in the life of the Christian here in just a bit. There's a second aspect to their inheritance in the text. Look with me at verse two. This second aspect is perhaps more staggering than the first. Not only were they to share in the offerings before the Lord. Verse two, they shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Church family, God doesn't give them the land. God gives them God. That's the priestly inheritance. And the language of this verse is emphatic. The ESV doesn't do it here. I'm not sure why. But we could translate this something like this. The Lord alone is their inheritance. I mean, it's, it's emphatic. It's not simply the Lord is their inheritance. The Lord alone, he is their inheritance. Gary Miller, who's an Old Testament commentator from Australia, one that I've learned a lot from in Deuteronomy, actually wrote a dissertation on Deuteronomy. He's been studying Deuteronomy a long time. Miller provides tremendous insight here. He says that the priests served as both an index and an ideal for Israel's relationship with the Lord. Let me say that again. The priests served as both an index and an ideal for Israel's relationship with the Lord. What does this mean? Well, on the one hand, they were an index for Israel's relationship with the Lord in the sense that their daily sustenance was dependent on Israel's faithfulness to the Lord. Think about that for just a second. If the tribes 
The other 11 tribes are unfaithful to the Lord and they don't bring their offerings and they don't bring their first fruits. What becomes of the priests who are dependent on their sustenance present in those offerings? They don't eat. They're not clothed. And so they serve as a kind of index for all of Israel. You could look at the Levites. In particular, you could look at the priests and determine the spiritual health of the nation. Like people, like priests. The priests had this unique privilege of being an index and a constant testimony to the spiritual vitality or lack thereof for the rest of Israel. So in that sense, they were an index for Israel's relationship with the Lord. On the other hand, they were the ideal for Israel's relationship with the Lord. In other words, God's relationship with the priests and the Levites generally, I should say, was to serve as a clarion call to all Israel, every tribe to find satisfaction, not in what God gives, but in God himself. In that sense, they were the ideal. Listen to what God said back in Exodus chapter 19, verses five and six. God said, now therefore, now this is to the first generation of Israelites coming out of Egypt as they came out of Egypt. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean? It means that God's desire for his people was not to have a small percentage serving as priests. It means that God's desire for his people was that every single one of them would be communing with him as priests. Everyone. God's desire was to have a priestly people, not a people containing some priests, you see. So in this sense, the priests were the ideal for Israel's relationship before the Lord. Priesthood was to be a characteristic of God's people. And so the Levites served to call Israel to this intimacy with God in which the land was not their inheritance, but was only the place where they enjoyed their true inheritance, where they communed with the God who who had rescued them. The land was just the locus the place where this was to take place. God was to be their ultimate inheritance, their final delight. And you see, this wasn't, as Exodus 19 demonstrates, this wasn't to be unique to the Levites. This wasn't to be unique to a percentage of God's people called the priests. In the end, this was to be extended to all of God's people. You may or may not be familiar with Jeremiah 31, but in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, which was written some, oh, what, 800 years or so after Deuteronomy, Jeremiah promises this, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for all will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. Now keep in mind, priests, again, as they represented God to the people and as they represented the people to God, they served as teachers of God's law. Therefore, this language in in Jeremiah 31, all will know me. No longer will one person teach the other saying, know the Lord. Every one of them is going to know me. This is in part priestly language. That is, Jeremiah tells of a day when every single one who trusts in the Lord will serve as a priest. Not just a percentage. Don't miss this or you'll miss Deuteronomy 18 and how we should read this text as followers of Jesus Christ. The Levites were unique in this respect, but that was not God's goal. They were the ideal for all of God's people 
to commune with him. Certainly in the land, but the land was not the focus. It was just the place where God was highlighted, where he was to be enjoyed as their inheritance, as their greatest delight. So, God withholds ownership in the land from the priests. We saw that. He gives a share of his offerings. So he, in fact, does provide an inheritance through the offerings. And moreover, ultimately, he gives himself to the priests. Now, finally, let's consider this. What does this mean for us? What does all of this mean for us as followers of Jesus Christ? Remember the language of Exodus 19, where God made this promise that if Israel would obey, they would become a kingdom of priests. Listen to the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And Peter actually uses similar language a few verses back, around verse 4, I believe it is. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. But here in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter says this. To Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Quoting Exodus 19. Quoting God's promise to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, understanding that promise fulfilled in Christ Jesus and applying it to the church, to Christians who trust in Jesus, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Revelation 1, let me give you one more verse here. Revelation 1, verse 5 and 6, second part of verse 5 and verse 6. John the Apostle writes these words, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. There it is, same language. So through Christ Jesus, by means of his incarnation, death and resurrection, now we've become priests of God. We've become a kingdom of priests, John writes, as he's carried along by God's spirit. That is to say, all who know God as their father through faith in Jesus Christ are priests. This is what the Protestant tradition refers to as the priesthood of all believers the priesthood of all believers. That is to say, there isn't a special class of Christian that we call priests and then all other Christians. That would be comparable to what we find throughout the Mosaic Covenant. Now, in Christ Jesus, what we find is that priesthood extends to everyone who's in Christ. Now, with this in mind, let's return to that twofold aspect, shall we? Let's consider Deuteronomy 18 in light of the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ Jesus. Because by the way, this is, this is how we interpret scripture. I'm gonna get too far off here. Someone fix the clock. How about that? <laughs> excellent, excellent, brother. <laughs> he thought, no, we're not doing this today. I'll try not to get too far off on this, but as we read and interpret Scripture, and in particular the Old Testament, we're not looking for things that aren't in the text, okay? We're looking for things that are in the text. However, let me say something, and perhaps it's a point of clarification for some of you. It has been for me historically. What we're not suggesting when we do what we're about to do in just a moment, we're not suggesting that a second century Israelite coming out of Egypt, standing on the plains of Moab as they heard 120-year-old Moses preach would have understood all that we're about to say from Deuteronomy 18. We're not saying that. What we're saying is that as we march through biblical history and as we arrive at the foot of the cross, and as we arrive at the empty tomb and we find out that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, we find that all of scripture bears testimony to the coming of Jesus Christ. 
We find out that he is the high priest. He is the temple. He is the tabernacle. He is the land, so on and so forth. When we find out all of this, then, don't miss this, then we go back to the Old Testament with the lens of Christ. And this is, I think, what Paul does. Okay, we're gonna turn there. Turn to Romans 16, just for a moment. This is an excursus, an aside. I heard someone say something like, a what? Because my desire for you isn't simply, my desire for me isn't simply that we understand what the scriptures are teaching. My desire is that we understand how to read and interpret scripture as Christians. Romans 16, I think. Look at verse 25, there it is. It's not in verse 25. We'll we'll work through a couple of verses. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now watch this. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept, what? Secret for long ages. Okay, so this is, this is the revelation that is the revealing of the mystery that was kept secret. That's, that's a robust understanding of, of Christianity, of the gospel of Christ, and so on and so forth. Now look at verse 26. But has now been disclosed. Okay, now it's been revealed. How? Where? Where is it revealed? Keep looking. Through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations. Now, that's sufficient. You can go back to Deuteronomy 18 if you'd like. What is Paul saying here? There was, there was, wait, no, this would be back here for you. <laughs> there was a mystery that was kept secret for ages. Now, we won't talk about all the details of that mystery. Let's just call it a robust understanding of the gospel. The way God's plan would unfold in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And it was always there in the prophetic writings, but it was kept secret for ages. Now it's been revealed, but it's not been revealed as it were, detached from the prophetic writings. It's been revealed in the prophetic writings. That is to say, it was always there, but we couldn't actually see it until the coming of Jesus Christ. That's the point. That's reading the Old Testament Christianly. And that's why we don't just turn to the Old Testament and look for moral standards, for example, by which we should live, although we do find, indeed, moral standards by which we should live. We don't just turn to our Old Testaments looking for exemplary models to follow in their steps, although, indeed, we find exemplary models in which to follow in their steps. We turn to the Old Testament And we say things like this, sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's about Christ. Moreover, we don't just, if I could say it this way, goodness, try not to step into blasphemy. We don't simply, as it were, want to see how this leads us to the cross or how this leads us to the empty tomb or how this leads us to the incarnation, or how this leads us to the ascension, or how this leads us to the future return of Christ. We also want to see how through Christ, it instructs us in how to live as followers of Christ. It becomes Christian instruction at this point. Tremendous. This is why we're preaching through Deuteronomy. It's why. We're learning how to read God's word Christianly through the coming of Christ. I think in a way that's similar, goodness, I'm still learning how to do this, but in a way that's similar to what the Apostle Paul suggests in Romans 16, the mystery kept secret for ages, now revealed and through the prophetic writings made known to the nations. See. Leading to the obedience of faith, Danny. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And if you went one chapter back, I so love it when someone speaks out. You all know this, by the way. Danny just did my heart good. Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 10. 
All of these things are written for our instruction. You see how this works? So is, is Deuteronomy about the second generation of Israelites coming out of Egypt, standing on the plains of Moab, entering the land of Canaan? Yes, it absolutely is. But don't stop there. Don't stop there. Take the road that leads to Calvary. Take the road that leads to the empty tomb and sit at the feet of Jesus as he instructs from Deuteronomy 18 in the obedience of faith. Okay, my word. Where did we go? And where was I? What this means for us, that's where we are. Back to Deuteronomy 18 for a few moments before we wrap up. And back to Deuteronomy 18 with a fresh understanding of where this takes us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the priesthood of all believers. Don't miss that. Hold on to that. The priests in the text shared in the offerings of the Lord and ultimately they inherited God himself, right? Well, built into this text, I think, is a subtle promise, a subtle reality that cannot be extracted from the text until the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. After all, the inheritance, remember, the inheritance consisted of both a share in the offerings on the altar and in the Lord himself. It was both sharing in the offerings and the Lord himself. On the cross, these two realities converge. That is to say, on the cross, as Jesus Christ dies, God himself becomes the offering. You see? In Deuteronomy 18, the priests inherited two aspects. But in actuality, what this pointed us to was a single inheritance. God becoming human in Christ Jesus while remaining God and giving himself as an offering for sinners. He's our inheritance. In Christ, we partake of the offering offered finally and fully for us. And in Christ, we inherit God himself. Romans chapter eight, verse 16 and 17. Listen to what the apostle Paul writes. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. The benefit of the gospel is not a healthy life, fundamentally, The benefit of the gospel is not fundamentally a happy marriage. The benefit of the gospel is not fundamentally obedient children, successful job, or even getting into a place called heaven. The benefit of the gospel is God. In Christ Jesus, we get God, church family. Oh, sure, there are some things that God withholds from us in this life as his children. But what he withholds from us is far inferior, infinitely inferior to what he gives to us himself. About nine years ago, I was thinking this past week, it reminded me, John Piper wrote a book and the book was called God is the Gospel. I want you to listen to what he wrote on pages 16 and 17. Piper said that the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? 
if we're not careful, church family, I find this even in my own ministry, if we're not careful, we'll present the gospel as a promise that if you trust in Jesus, your marriage will be repaired. You will have happy and healthy kiddos. Your life will be fulfilling. You yourself will be happy. You won't go to hell. Hell's terrible. Who wants to go there? It's hot. I mean, who wouldn't accept this message? Who wouldn't accept the message that promises complete fulfillment, happiness, you get everything back that was taken from you? Everything. Happiness, healthy marriage, happy kiddos. There's even a song, and you know, I understand the sentiment, but it oftentimes miscommunicates with Jesus and the family. What a happy home. Maybe. You don't have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit to want these things. On the other hand, you have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit to want Jesus. That's what we're offering. That's what God gives in the gospel. He gives himself. God becomes the offering. He becomes the inheritance for all those who will cry out to him in faith. So perhaps you've come to Jesus, perhaps, You've come to Jesus to get something other than Jesus. It may be that you were, you were once saved. But as you reflect on that salvation, it wasn't to Jesus you were converted. Perhaps you were converted to happiness. You were converted to fulfillment. you were converted to a kind of prosperity maybe, comfort, success. And Jesus was an avenue to get there. What I'm offering you this morning, what the Spirit of God is offering you this morning in Deuteronomy 18 is not Jesus as an avenue, but Jesus alone. Jesus as the end. Jesus as the inheritance. The God-man. It is Christ that I offer to you. Certainly, by the way, certainly there are eternal benefits to being in Christ, but those are benefits to being in Christ. He will not be a means. He is the end. And this is why Augustine made a huge stink in a book he wrote on understanding the distinction on the one hand between things that we should use and things that we should enjoy. And Augustine says, concerning things that we should use, put everything in that category except God, who alone is to be enjoyed. And what Augustine was arguing, of course, is I think comparable to Deuteronomy 18. Everything else is the means through which, by which we enjoy the greatest gift of all, our chief inheritance, God himself in Christ. Friends, if you've not come to embrace Christ and Christ alone this morning, I plead with you to do that. It's not a prayer that'll save you, right? It's not a prayer that brings you into a right relationship with God. It's Christ himself that brings you into this right relationship with God. But it can begin with a prayer. And if you have questions about this gospel we preach here at First Baptist Powell or Christianity or God himself being our inheritance in the person and work of Jesus Christ, please stick around afterward. And as you exit these doors, take a left. And on the right-hand side out there, there's a room called The Crossroads. You'll see the title just above the room. Stay in there for just a few moments and have a conversation with a pastor about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for God to offer himself in the person and work of Christ? And perhaps, perhaps if the Lord's working in you to trust in him, we can come alongside of you and you alongside of us. As we learn together, because it really is a lifelong process, 
as we learn together, to use Augustine's words, to use everything else so that we might enjoy God in Christ. This reality, and we need to wrap up, that is the reality that in the gospel we get God. In receiving Christ, we receive God incarnate. And in receiving God incarnate, then of course we get all the benefits that come with being in Christ. This reality has been communicated so well by the ancient Irish hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Be Thou My Vision, the author writes. O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. And then the third verse, and we're gonna sing this here in just a moment. The third verse, listen to this, and then in a moment, sing it. Riches I heed not, nor men's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for revealing yourself through the person and work of Jesus Christ as we find in the prophetic writings. Thank you for showing us yourself in Deuteronomy 18. Thank you for calling us out of using Jesus or using you as a means to the end. Some benefit, perhaps. Forgive us. Forgive us, O oh Father, for focusing on the benefits and not the one in whom we find those benefits. Forgive us, forgive me, for focusing on the gifts and not on the gift giver. Forgive me, O oh God, for losing sight of what it is indeed that I inherit in Christ Jesus, your Son. Call us afresh this morning as a church to a renewed zeal and delight in you and in Christ Jesus. And grant us the freedom to go from this place this morning, carrying with us the promise that through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we get God. Oh, Father, do this for the sake of your name and the glory of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.